That's what we want, right? To draw close. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Finish up this chapter this week, verses 23 through 37. The gospel at any cost. At any cost. You're going to see that today. Peter and John, so let me give you a recap. I've noticed on streaming they give you a lot of recaps, or they'll show you the previous episode. Um, I usually skip that. But I'm going to give you a recap because it's been a week. Peter and John heal a lame man. They had been lame since he was born. He was 40-plus years old, and he was sitting at the temple gate begging all the time. And, and, and Peter and John came up to him and healed him by the name of Jesus Christ. So crowds gather. Peter preaches. It's a typical thing for Peter to do at this point in time. But then last week we talked about the temple leaders come and they arrest Peter and John. They don't like that Peter's preaching. They don't like that he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, mostly because most of them don't believe in a resurrection, um, which makes them sad in my opinion. But they bring them before the Sanhedrin, the court of 70 plus, and they examine them is one word that's used for it. They really are putting them on trial. And Peter preaches, which is good. He preaches to him again. So the Sanhedrin put them out. They confer. They have a little conference. And they say to themselves, we cannot deny the miracle. The man is standing right there. He is well. He is healthy. We cannot deny the miracle. We, and they, then they don't even deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though none of them believe it. They could never find a body, so they couldn't deny it. They had no evidence. But they order them not to talk to, about Jesus at all. They cut it off completely. Do not talk about him. You are ordered not to. You are threatened. They released Peter and John with these threats to be quiet or else. <laughs> and now the church responds, and that's what our passage is on today. I want you to hear it right here in this passage, the gospel at any cost. Listen to what the church does. Verse 23, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priest and the elders had said to them, Peter and John. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. And you said, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father, our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses 
sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father, I love this story. I thank you for giving it to us. I thank you for what the first church, what they did, what they did in, in the face of such persecution and opposition, that in the face of the people that had Jesus Christ, your son, crucified, they said, give us boldness. They defied it, and they spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we be so bold. Teach us that through this sermon this morning, Father. In your son's name, we surrender it all. Amen. So the first church responds to this arrest and this questioning and the release of Peter and John. And they, they respond with a full submission, a full surrender of their own personal safety, their own personal ideas. They become, they become very submissive and they become very selfless in getting the gospel out. Well, the church must be that way. The church must be undeterred by any threat and stay focused on getting the gospel to the world. So what can a church do to face such opposition? What can we do? How do we respond to adversity? How do we respond to resistance against the gospel? Like some of what's going on out there today. Well, first, the first church, they responded with two disciplines that we can actually employ today. We can do this too. And it ensured that the gospel continued all the way to today. If they had never done this, we wouldn't be standing here and sitting here today. First response, pray. Pray to God. Verses 23 through 31. Listen to what they did. After they were released, they, Peter and John, went to their own people, the church, and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they, the church, raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah? For in fact, this happens, he's there saying, in this city, Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they assemble together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant your servants, grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God. Boldly. What a prayer. What a prayer. So Peter and John go back to the church. It's probably not all 5,000 plus that we heard last week. We're now believers, 5,000 men plus women and children. It's probably not the whole church because there wasn't a building big enough in Jerusalem at that time to house 5,000 people except the temple courtyards. And they, went, they didn't go back there. So they gather probably more than the original 120 that the church started with. 
And they report everything that the Sanhedrin had said to him. All the threats, all the orders, all the edicts they gave him said, don't talk about Jesus, don't talk about Jesus. You're forbidden to talk about Jesus. <laughs> they made it very clear. There was no way they could go, well, I didn't quite understand what you said. No, the, they, the Jews did not want Peter and John, the apostles, the church, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke even records for us in the, in the previous passages kind of what the conference went on that they had without Peter and John in there. Luke got a hold of that testimony and that they discussed the fact that they can't deny the miracle. They admitted that. They couldn't deny the miracle. And also they didn't deny the resurrection of Jesus as well. They couldn't deny that it was an obvious sign of God. So let's threaten them. That's, that was their conclusion. After the report, the church responds. After Peter and John come back and tell them all this stuff, they responded. How do they respond? Well, I'm glad you asked. Prayer. Prayer. We, we, we sometimes think that that's the, that's the only thing we can do. Yeah, that's the most thing we can do. Pray. They praise God for this opportunity. You need to see that right up front. They praise God for this opportunity. The fact that they have been threatened by the Sanhedrin, by the guys who crucified Jesus. You don't supposed to talk about Jesus. They praise God for that. They recite a familiar Jewish prayer. So I know maybe some of you are wondering, well, how could they all pray together? Because we all have our individual prayers. Well, this was the beginning of this, at least, was a Jewish ritual prayer that they had recited probably since they were kids. And so they prayed this, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. And then they kind of go off and, and, and pray this prayer about the Gentiles raging and the nations coming together and people plotting against them. But you know what? Your creator is your master, whether you know it or not. And that's what they were confessing there. One day we'll all know who the master really is. Now, it's an interesting word, master. In the Greek, the real word they use is despotes, despotes, which is the word we get despot from. Now, despot's bad, right? Nobody likes to have a despot. There's been many despots in our history, in human history, many despots. But remember, this is God they're talking to. And God is not a bad master. He's not a bad despot. He's, a, he's a, not a bad one. He is absolute authority in perfection, okay? In perfection, he is perfectly the right authority we need. So they're recognizing that. They're recognizing that God Almighty holds absolute mastery over all things, creation and us. Psalms 119.73 that we, we said together this morning talks about cre being him being the creator. The God that made it all spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is Old Testament. They, the Holy Spirit was around since eternity passed. And he spoke this whole psalm, Psalms 2. Psalms 2 in your, in your Old Testament is a messianic psalm. It, it is the whole thing. It's talking about the Messiah coming and what's going to happen. But they pray specifically verses 1 and 2 because they just, saw it, they just saw it come to pass right in front of them. They declare that it's fulfilled because Pilate and Herod and all the, those people were, were gathering together to rage against the Messiah. They plotted all kinds of evil. As a matter of fact, when we went through Mark, we found out that it wasn't very deep into Mark before they started plotting against Jesus, the Jews especially. So... Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and Israel, they all make up the raging nations that this verse talks about. Um, the Sanhedrin and Herod formed an alliance to get Jesus crucified. Now, they were normally adversaries because Herod was not a very religious king. 
Matter of fact, he was just a figurehead that Rome had put in place. And so the Sanhedrin, the Jews, and Herod, who wasn't a Jew, who was declared king of, of Israel, basically, in a sense, he was actually king of Galilee, they were adversaries, but they worked together for this because they had a common enemy, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But I don't want you to miss the theological nugget that's right here in the, in the middle of this prayer. The sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God predestined his son to die at their hands for the salvation of humanity. This was not something that just kind of happened and God used it. It was a plan. It was decided in eternity past. The sovereignty of God predestined these tyrants, these tyrants, to kill Jesus. It was a predestined thing. God used the evil inside their hearts to fulfill his plan to redeem all the lost souls of humanity if they will come to him. Now that's grace. That's grace in an amazing way. We just don't see that. We don't sometimes get, get that. But because of that grace, because of the forgiveness and eternal life that's wrapped up in that predestined plan of Jesus Christ and of God, that nugget of truth was an awakening moment for them. A moment where they realized we can pray for us to be bold. We can pray that we will go out and risk all for Jesus Christ. They, launched, they requested something that staggers our minds. Instead of praying for God to just protect them, for God to just hide them, for God to get them out of sight of the authorities, they prayed to be vocal witnesses. They want boldness to do the exact opposite these mad lunatics in the Sanhedrin wanted them to not do. They want to speak Jesus fearlessly. They want to speak Jesus unashamedly so they can challenge these despots in the Sanhedrin with the truth of God, who is their master. I mean, it's, it's just, they realize that God's got this all wrapped up and, and taken care of. So there's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason. Now, we all have fears, and they obviously did too, but that's why they prayed for boldness. They can't pray for boldness if they don't have some fear. Why would you have to do that? So they had some fear. But as they, they speak, they ask God to show his signs as well, to demonstrate to everybody in the world, hey, God's certifying this message we're speaking his signs in the name of jesus the name of jesus who they were forbid to speak the name of jesus who had healed the lame man the, the guy who had never walked could now walk and jump and leap and and skip i can't skip sometimes it's funny but they they had seen him healed and you i want you to see that their prayer was squarely founded squarely grounded on god's truth and the salvation that's in jesus christ they were, they were sure that they could pray this prayer without any fear, without any hesitation. That they weren't praying anything wrong. They weren't being reckless of, of any kind. They could ask anything in his name. In his name. Because God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all. And they can ask God to embolden their mouths to speak relentlessly about Jesus. And guess what? We can too. We can ask to be that vocal about our Savior. And we should be. We should be asking that. They want to share the gospel so boldly that they even get arrested. That's kind of their, their mindset here. Is they want to even say it to the point where they get arrested and they get a chance to testify about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They're asking for affliction. 
In Psalms 119.71 this morning that we read, they, he thanked God for the afflictions because it taught him. They're asking for it. And God is pleased with their prayer. You know how we know? He shook the building. He shook the building. It was an earthquake without any damage. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Poor Turkey. That would be nice. They would love an earthquake without any damage. They probably wouldn't like an earthquake at all. But they were shaken. The building was shaken, and they were filled. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to explain that again. I've, I've tried a couple of times before, and I want to give a little more clarity on this, what being filled with the Holy Spirit means. We're all that believe in Jesus Christ. We all have the Holy Spirit living in us. That's a gift from God. Jesus sent it. Those who believe are filled with the Holy Spirit are given the Holy Spirit as a gift when you become a believer. But this filling that they talk about is a little bit extra. A little, and sometimes a lot extra, a lot more. And this happens because... That's what God wants to happen in us. Ephesians 5.18 kind of commands believers to be filled with this. It basically says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it uses, that verse actually uses alcohol as a contrast. Don't be drunk and, and, and carrying on, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the contrast that God sets in that verse. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The filling is a continuous thing we should be doing. Regularly sought condition of our heart. The heart of a believer should be always seeking to make sure we're emptying ourselves and filling ourselves with the Holy Spirit. And God will do that. But before someone can be filled with the Spirit, he must be empty of all other passions. He must not let anything else's, any other desires, rule that out and root that out and keep that out. So Jesus said it many times, dying to ourself completely. Dying to ourself and being sanctified, set apart from sin will aid us to be filled and be ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You may not have it every day, and it's not an emotion. That's one of the things I want to stress. It's not an emotion. It's, it's power and strength and wisdom and knowledge to do something, to say something, to respond to something. They were, they were free from self-preservation in this prayer, and their attitudes were free from self-preservation. And this denial leads to a constant practice of abiding in the presence of Jesus. And that's feeling of the Holy Spirit. It is not an emotion. It is not something ecstatic or even, it, it can create emotions, but it's not an emotional response. It is God filling you with a little bit more to help you get through a situation. So as a result of their prayer, they did go out and speak boldly about Jesus Christ. They did exactly what the Sanhedrin told them not to do. They went out and they spoke to all who would listen the wonderful news of Jesus without one thought for themselves. They weren't worried about themselves. They weren't worried about if they were going to get in prison or, or threatened or even hurt. They weren't. They were, they were free from that. Their first response to opposition should be our first response to opposition and persecution, to pray more and pray for more gospel in our lives, more of gospel, the gospel in our hearts, such a big capacity to share it, to tell it. They threw caution to the wind, they did. They threw caution to the wind, and the Spirit filled them to proclaim, at any cost, the gospel. There's another couple of guys from the Old Testament that, uh, that kind of did this too. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, most of you, some of you are familiar with this story. But these are three guys that were Israelites, but they had been exiled to Babylon. They were in the king's court. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he decided he was full of himself, and he decided to build an idol out there, a statue, and he wanted everybody to bow down to it. He wanted that kind of power. He wanted that kind of authority. So he commanded everybody to bow down. And if you didn't bow down, you were going to be thrown into a, a fiery furnace and burned up. 
That was, their, that was his threat. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they worshiped the one true living God. And they said, we can't bow down. So someone, of course, narked on them and told on them. And they were drawn before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I know you must have misunderstood me. And they were like, no, King Nebuchadnezzar, we did not misunderstand you. We know our God can save us from your furnace. We know that. But their prayer went on one more step. And if not, and if not, we still will not bow to your idol. That's the kind of faith that this church here, first, the first church, had. And if not, it was complete self-denial. There's no self-preservation there. We don't need to be praying like a small-town church with a small-town God. We, we really don't. We need to look bigger. We need to think bigger. We need to think about praying for great things and then going out and doing great things for God. And oh, by the way, great's not measured by numbers. It's by measured by quality and God's approval. And prayer should be, every time, any time, and all the time, our first response. Our first response. The Apostle John in, that's in this story, he, he later records how salvation connects to prayer in God's will to make much of his son. In 1 John 5, you can turn there if you want, 1 John 5, verses 11 through 15. I want you to hear how John connects our faith and, and our eternal life with prayer. John, 1 John 1, 15. I'll find it in a minute. I should have tabbed it. 1 John 5, 11 through 15. Say that again. 1 John 5, 11 through 15. John's been telling them that they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that by Jesus Christ, eternal life is found. And he says in verse 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. And then he says, I have written these things to you so that you will know that you have eternal life. You, you will know that you can believe these things and trust these things. And then he goes on in verse 14. He says, this is the confidence we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That confidence comes from the fact that we know we have eternal life because of what John wrote, because of what we believe. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Eternal life is what allows us to pray. Eternal life is what allows us to pray and what dictates the contents of our prayer. That's what we have in eternal life. That's what this church realized. You know, sovereign God planned it all. So prayer, in any trial, in any difficulty, under any persecution, prayer must be our first reaction. John Calvin said, prayerlessness is practical atheism. The fact that we won't pray is an act of atheism, in a sense. It doesn't make you an atheist. It might. I don't know. But it doesn't. But the fact is, is that prayerlessness is practical atheism. Many times, many times we want to wait and see if we can figure it out. We want to wait and see if we can solve the problem, if we can make it go away. Many times we, we, we want to handle it. And we use prayer as a last resort, that last life preserver that's tossed to us 
That's what we do. And that's the bad way to react. Prayer should be first. Sometimes prayer should be only. (laughs) Sometimes that's all we can do is pray. And we should pray because that should be first. If we prayed first, we might see God do some amazing things. He might work it out sooner and probably will work it out better if we wait and pray. The church here saw Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as God's predestined plan of perfect redemption of humanity in his son, Jesus Christ. They saw the whole thing. They saw, oh, we've been saved by his death, burial, and resurrection. We can can trust God with this. They remembered God is the ultimate historian for all of history. That man does not write or make history, God does. And so they prayed for boldness to speak. We, do, we, do we pray for boldness to speak and make history like they did? You guys realize that Christianity changed the world. You think about it for a minute. From, from 2,000 years ago, how things would be different if Christianity never became an active and viable religion. So when was the last time you asked God to make your life difficult for the gospel? When was the last time you asked God to make your life hard so that you could share the gospel? Psalms 119.75 this morning said that. It said, you afflicted me and I learned your statutes and I spoke of you and I was delighting in you. Have you asked God to bring persecution in your life? I know it sounds like a kind of a oxymoron, but it's the paradox of the sovereignty of God is that we can ask. We can ask for that. And we probably should ask for that so that we can be vocal witnesses, that we can pray for persecution and pray for the bravery to face it. You know, we sing, we sang this morning, I am thine, O Lord, I long to rise in the arms of faith. This is how it happens. Prayer. Prayer puts us back squarely in faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Church, we, we need to be praying like this now. The world, is, the world is going in the wrong direction. We all know that. You can watch 15 seconds of any kind of news program and you're going to find out the world is going in the wrong direction. So we need to ask God to make our lives intersect with persecution. We do. We need to ask God to bring us into contact with those who are, who are wrong about the, what's right and wrong, who's wrong about Jesus Christ, and get a chance to tell them what's right and truth about Jesus Christ. So ask God for opportunities to face off against all the evils of our society. Ask God for those opportunities. Ask him to interrupt your life for his gospel. Because that's what we should be doing. That's the only reason the church is left here, is to be interrupted with the gospel. Let's stop praying small prayers. Let's stop praying safe prayers. Let's stop praying selfish prayers. And ask God to test our faith. That's a bold step. It's a bold step. But let's ask God to revive our hearts, to light our fires, to call us to share the gospel at any cost. It is why we are here. So that's what the, church, the first church did. In the face of the, the powerful persecution, they prayed, they prayed for God to use them in a bold way to speak about Jesus. And next, we see them face the hardships and, and the needs with selfish, selflessness and gospel focus. Their second response can be our second response, unified generosity. Look at verses 32 through 37. Now the entire group of those who believed, which is the church, were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. 
But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, this is a side story, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. All 5,000 plus were unified, and more had probably come to Christ in that time frame. It was probably well over 10,000 at this point. So the church was naturally scattered around in Jerusalem, different houses and, and different places. And, the, and they were having to kind of meet on a, on a smaller group basis. But they were there, and they were all unified in their heart and their mind about the gospel and about their purpose being in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's what they prayed for. They had prayed to be that vocal and that obvious to the world. And you know what? The Holy Spirit will unify any church if that church will ask to be honestly and humbly unified. It's, it's, not, it's not something that the Spirit would fight against you to, to do. You can pray for that. And under the banner of Jesus, serving and existing together means focusing on the eternal things, not the temporal things, not the things that you, you think you need. So you see here their unity and their selflessness, it manifested in holding everything they owned loosely. They didn't, they didn't insist on their rights. They didn't claim their proprietary rights to anything. They released it for everybody to use. Instead of claiming their entitlements, they claimed that, hey, this is open for the whole church to use. They offered their resources for everyone's use. I mean, we can't hardly fathom that in America, but that's, a, that's another sermon for another day. They freely gave up all their rights and let the church decide how to use their property and their resources. This was not mandatory. They were not being forced. This is not communism, as some people might think. This was not a commune, like some people might think. It was not forced at all. They didn't force this sharing. Everyone decided on their own by the leading of the Holy Spirit to give. They decided on their own. There was no compulsion except the Holy Spirit convicting them that, hey, I've got some extra, I've got some of this, I've got some of that, I can share it. They made their stuff available for the care and feeding of Christ's church and for his glory. What was the result? <laughs> the apostles' preaching and teaching got better. God was on them with power helping them understand and be able to interpret their Old Testament, their, their Bible. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. Interpret it and understand all what the Messiah brought, coupling it with what they had been taught the three years that Jesus had taught them. And the other result was grace was great. Grace was falling on them. See, we think sometimes we kind of leave grace as just the point of salvation, Grace covers all of us, from grace to grace, as John writes. Grace covers us always. There's a common grace for all the world, even. I mean, God does not let everything go completely haywire. He controls certain things. But the grace in Jesus Christ, it's favor from God, and it fell on them in a mighty, powerful way. They had provisions. They had protection to some degree, and they had production. They were, they were getting people saved. People were coming to Christ. So see, the main thing, Jesus' resurrection is proclaimed there. That's what they were focused on. It centered their life purpose 
right there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God blessed them with grace. I hope you got some testimony of grace just showing up like I do. Man, it's, it's amazing. So, and, and so then you can, I don't know if you can imagine this or not. They, the writer says, nobody had any needs. There, were no, there ain't no need here. Okay, there is nothing that anybody was without. Can you imagine that? No one went hungry. No one was homeless. No one was naked. Everybody had everything they needed. That's, that's crazy. That's, that's awesome. Their unity and their selfless generosity produced an environment and expanded them into, it even expanded into selling property, selling things. And it's like, okay, I don't need this. I'm not going to need this in heaven. <laughs> so I'm going to sell it, give the proceeds to the, the apostles and let them decide how to use it. And the apostles got to decide how to distribute these basic, for the, to meet the basic human needs. They became, they were, and automatically were, spiritual leaders. They were the spiritual leaders of the church. God was already beginning to put some structure in place for his church, which we'll get to later this year, talking about some of that structure. The apostles then were given right then the mantle of leadership. Later it became, becomes elders, and we'll talk about that at a later date. But. And here's the question we all ask when we talk about distributing to everybody as they had need and all this stuff. How did they determine what the needs were? Well, Maslow's Pyramid of Needs is basic. Food, shelter, clothing. I mean, that's where they started. They may have helped in other ways. They may have paid off some taxes that a person was getting threatened by, by the Romans. They may have done some other stuff like that, but they took care of the food, shelter, and clothing. Pretty simple. Some of us have a lot of extra stuff in our house, including clothes. But they were doing that out of the, goodness, the kindness of their heart, out of the, out of the leading of the Holy Spirit. It was not under compulsion. And then Luke gives us a great example, a great example of this. He introduces us to Barnabas. And if you've read your Bible, you know Barnabas is kind of a key character. Later, he's, he's Paul's number one fan. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Here he enters the, the, the scene. He sells some property. He demonstrates exactly what's going on. He sells some property he owns there around Jerusalem somewhere and brings the money and gives it to the apostles. So Luke is introducing Barnabas to us, but he is also setting up chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira sell property, but they lied to God about giving it all to him. They didn't have to give it all, but they lied about saying they were giving it all, and that's another whole sermon too. We're not going to get into that today, but in this verse we see a magnificent exhibition of what it means to be unified and generous as a church. And we see exactly what it looks like. The church was giving up everything to keep the gospel message going. They weren't meeting the needs of the church members and the people just to feed them and clothe them and shelter them. They were meeting them so that they would go out and speak boldly about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. They were going forth into the world. You know, but this kind of generosity is not, shouldn't be unfamiliar to the apostles. The apostles have seen this before. Remember the widow with her two little coins? Remember that? She goes into the temple with the last two copper coins worth less than a penny and gives them all to God. Not one, not 50%. I mean, did you ever tithe 50%? Wow. She gave it all. That example was now being played out in, in mass in the church. They were giving it all. They were surrendering it all. And we should too. The church was imitating that widow 
And we should too. Hear Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, and then he gave the Sermon on the Plain. Luke records that in Luke 6. And in that sermon, after he's talked about the Beatitudes and a whole bunch of other stuff, he says, give, and it shall be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. It's talking about giving But it's not just talking about giving money and resources and clothes. It's talking about giving of yourself. What measure are you using in your life to give? How are you measuring out what you're going to give? How far will your generosity go? Do you own anything that you have declared off limits to God? It's a hard question to answer. I have a lot of stuff that I'm not necessarily willing to give up. But I know I should be able to hold it loosely as they did. No, I'm not begging for money. Most people think that's what pastors do all the time, trying to raise the offering. No, God asked me to give these things too. He asked me to stop and look at my heart because generosity is not about the bottom line at the church. It is about the heart. God is always, always about our hearts. And one of the ways he can test your heart is through your checkbook. Does, does, he's done it in the past. He'll do it again. But God is only interested in your heart, and he wants to get that right. And generosity is always a matter of the heart. The gospel is the most crucial need in the world today, and we need to remember that because we can give the resources to help get the gospel to a lot of places. Nothing else compares to the need that's out there for the gospel. 157,000 people die every day, every day, without ever hearing the gospel. 157,000. There are 7,300 people groups out there, language groups that have never heard the gospel. They're not reached. They don't have a church presence. They may not even have a copy in their own native language of God's word. From the big standpoint, 59% of the world population have no real gospel presence in their life. 59% of 8 billion people, you do the math. So what are we supposed to do? God challenges our hearts to hold all of our temporal possessions with with open hands, to be loosely holding on to them. Give him a chance, okay? Pray about this, okay? I'm not not telling anybody to run out and sell everything. That's not what we're saying. But give God a chance to to ask you for help, to ask you to offer the the opportunity to surrender your niceties for necessities, to give them over to people who need and, and supply needs. Because in those needs, when we meet them, we have an opportunity to give them a spiritual help, to meet a spiritual need. Just like that lady said on the video this morning, she gets them in the friendship house and she gets a chance as she's clothing them and sheltering them and feeding them, she gets a chance to talk to them about Jesus. And it's beautiful. And Yvonne's a great testimony of that. We need to eliminate our selfishness, our agenda, our own ownership, and we can, then we can focus on God's agenda because he's got one, and he wants you to be part of it. The gospel at any cost means that we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross, our burdens, and we follow Jesus to the ends of the world. That's what, it, that's what it's called to do. That's the gospel calls us, calls us to do that. We're going to sing in a minute, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands or be a king or anything. I'd rather have Jesus. Psalms 119.72 speaks the same thing. What is your heart telling you today?
What is it telling you today? Have you found the joy of unified generosity? You can. We saw in this passage this morning that the church prays for boldness. They do. They pray for boldness to take on persecution. They were deliberately defying the Sanhedrin, the group of people who sent Jesus to the cross. And then they give. <laughs> they give to fight physical needs and at the same time meet spiritual needs. The gospel at any cost. The gospel at any cost is our calling as disciples of Christ. We are called to pursue it that way. We're sur to surrender and submit all that we have, our life to him. And it starts with our hearts, okay? It starts with our hearts. Don't ever forget that. God's always after your hearts. It continues with our lives. There's things in your life you need to give up and give away. And it finishes with our Savior one day saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep that as your goal. Keep that as your end result here, your purpose, to please your Savior. This church here has a lot of stored up assets. We have a lot of resources. And we need to ask God, what do we need to do with these, God? How can we use these to help you get the gospel out there? We need to ask God how to use them for his kingdom in his way. So we're going to take some time right now, silent prayer, to ask God to show us, to motivate us, how to employ what we have personally and corporately as a church for his kingdom. So if you want to come to the front and pray, please do so. I would ask that you do that if you want. We're going to take a few minutes of silent prayer, and then we'll close. Let's pray.